It's good to be with you. I'm thankful that you are here today, and I want to thank all of you for participating in our time in worship. Uh, before we jump into our sermon today, I want to give you a little bit of advanced notice uh, about something that's going to start next Sunday. Next Sunday, I'm going to begin a new sermon series that is going to be called Surprise the World. Uh, and this this series is, I'm excited about starting, really start, I'm excited about it for a lot of reasons, but I'm excited to start 2024 with this series um, because if I think that the, the content of the things we're going to discuss are going to be practical and helpful for us. If you are someone uh, that thinks about how to live out your faith or even share your faith, uh, but you struggle to know how to do that, um, in a, particularly in a post-Christian culture, a culture that um, is not, uh, does not recognize Christ, does not acknowledge God, uh, how, how, do we, how do we live in the time in which we are living uh, as the people of God and, and knowing that our world, everybody talks about God, people know about God, but often our culture doesn't uh, acknowledge God in any way. And so I believe this study is going to be helpful for you if you're someone who thinks about that, has ever thought about that, because we're going to talk about five really practical ways that you can live a life that shares your love for Jesus uh, with those around you. And so the title of this series is is based upon a book by the same title. And so I'm going to be kind of walking through some of the content of that book, and I'm sharing it with you now. It's no, not, not wanting, wanting to make it any surprise that I'm using this book, uh, but it might be something that you uh, would want to purchase. And so uh, you don't have to do that. I'm going to, like I said, going to use the book, that, this book and some other things to kind of walk us through the first month or so of the year. But I believe it's going to be a helpful uh, to our journey together as a church, and so that'll start next week, and I want to give you a heads up about that in the event that that is a book that you would want to look into. So during uh, Advent, we talk a lot about uh, waiting for Christmas to arrive and waiting for Jesus to, to arrive as a baby and then acknowledging that we're still waiting for his return. And so last Sunday, as you all know, we celebrated that arrival uh, not only here in worship, but at our Christmas Eve service last Sunday evening. And, and many of you have heard me talk over the years about the fact that uh, really after Advent is when Christmas really begins. Uh, in, in our culture, you know, Christmas is one day, uh, but it's, it's in reality, it's not a one-day celebration. It's a 12-day celebration. This is where the 12 Days of Christmas song, the, the idea for that song comes from. And so my encouragement to you every year, I don't know that I have made any converts in this, but I'm going to continue to implore you anyway. My encouragement every year is to not rush to put the tree up just yet. And some of you are thinking, Doug, we did that the day of Christmas. We did that the day after Christmas. We will be receiving sinners here at the front after the end of the sermon you know, if you have a real tree, maybe you already drug it out to the curb. I will be around to pray with you after church this morning. Um, I'm sure the Lord will forgive you if we ask. But uh, I want to just acknowledge that the reason that I always talk about this every year is that Christmas, historically, we only kind of think about it in our lifetime, right? How, whatever you know about it or whatever you, your family traditions have been. But historically, Christmas has been a 12-day feast for Christians. 
And so we leave our tree up. I'm not sure my own family is even converted to this way of thinking, but they sort of oblige my desire to do this. We leave our tree up through January the 5th, which will be the 12th day of Christmas. Sometimes it's referred to as Epiphany. And so Christmas is not over. And so today is the seventh day of Christmas. Uh, And so I have titled my sermon, The Seventh Day of Christmas. And on this seventh day of Christmas, we are going to stay in the story of Jesus, continuing to look at this story. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 2. I want to encourage you to find that in your Bible if you have that with you, or you can look at it here on the screens as we read together. I'm going to read a, a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 22 and uh, continuing on through verse 40. This is what Luke writes in his gospel in Luke 2, beginning in verse 22. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And they took him to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. In our house, we have a calendar. This is actually a picture of that calendar that hangs on our big deep freezer. And it has the days of December and this little candy cane that you move through the month of December. It helps you count down the days until Christmas. It's a tool really just designed to build anticipation, to build excitement. And as our kids were younger, they would do that. I think that job's mostly fallen to Olivia now. But I was thinking about this calendar and as I was reading and studying for this sermon today because I was thinking about the idea of anticipation, of waiting for something. And I was thinking about the fact that 
We don't do this with any other holiday, do we? Like, I don't, I've never heard anybody say, I have never said, just 10 more days until Father's Day, right? Nobody is, is anticipating Father's Day. Most people forget that Father's Day is even actually a holiday. There's nobody saying, just four more days until Labor Day, right? But we do count the days until Christmas, Children particularly understand this as they get excited and the anticipation builds for Christmas each year. And then after Christmas arrives and then it goes on its way on the backside of Christmas every year, there is often this feeling, this moment. I know that many of you will relate to this today as you're thinking about the last several days of busyness and family and food and presents. There's this moment on the back end when you can finally feel like you can breathe a sigh of relief. You made it. The anticipation is over, the event is over, the people have left your house. There may still be things to be done, there may be some cleanup, there may be a, a gift or two to return because it was the wrong size. You've, if you've traveled to see family, you've traveled home or you're on your way home. But the feeling of anticipation is different than the feeling and the, that, you, that you experience after the event. That's what I want to capture as we think about this, this passage this morning. The feeling of anticipation of waiting for something is different. It's a different experience than the feeling that you have after the event has happened. And in our story today, Christmas has arrived. And Christmas is being carried in the arms of his parents, Mary and Joseph. And they are on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. And as we know, Mary and Joseph are Jewish, and so they are doing what Jews do after the birth of a child, and they've brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. They would have traveled to make this, to do this, this event that, that we're reading about this morning. They would have traveled to Jerusalem to fulfill the purification rites that were required by the Old Testament law. And Luke briefly tells us some background about what exactly is going on in this, in this story. But I want to actually this morning go a little deeper than what Luke does. He assumes that maybe there's some understanding about that, and I don't want to assume that this morning. And so I want to go back and look uh, at the two passages that are referenced in Exodus chapter 13, Leviticus chapter 12, that give us some insight, a little deeper insight into why Mary and Joseph were doing what they were doing that day at the temple. And so Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites, or of human or animal, belongs to me. And then in Leviticus chapter 12, her time of blood purification shall be 33 days. She shall not touch any, un, any holy thing or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. When the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, what would later be the temple, a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering or a pig and, a, and pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf, and then she shall be clean from her flow of blood." This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. If she cannot afford a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a purification offering, and the priest shall make atonement on her behalf, and she shall be clean. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the details of all of the, the sort of the why behind all of the things that they did, but I want you to kind of hear as we read those passages why they were there that day. They were there to do all of the things that we just read about in those two passages. And they were there to, to really do a few, thing, a few things together. I'm going to kind of combine three separate ceremonies, if you will, that were a part of the process of the, that a Jewish family would go through. And those three things were the purification of the woman after childbirth, presenting, the second one is presenting the firstborn child to God, and then the third one is dedicating that child to the Lord. And the, and the purification ceremony, as you read, would have involved a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, a sacrifice specifically of a lamb. But in the Torah, there was this provision for people who were poor, which I love. If someone could not afford a lamb, then they could substitute two pigeons or two turtle doves instead. So Luke doesn't elaborate on it, but he gives us a clue into Joseph and Mary's socioeconomic status by telling us that they took these two pigeons or two turtle doves. And I want you just to picture, it's easy to kind of read this and know the story and be familiar with it enough that you kind of breeze through it, but I want to try to make it modern and relevant today. Picture this scene with me for a minute, if you will. These two very young, very new parents are walking into church. I know it says temple, but it's church for them. They're walking into, the, into, into church and they're probably running late because parents of young children, can I get an amen, right? And Jesus is only a month old, so they probably have not slept much. Can I get an amen to that as well, right? And they have traveled to get there. They're not from Jerusalem. They've traveled to the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe they're walking. Maybe they rode a donkey. We don't know, but they had to travel nonetheless. And it wasn't a car. It wasn't a fast trip. It wasn't a, a long distance, but it was not a fast trip. And on top of that, I like to imagine that baby Jesus probably had a blowout diaper right before they arrived. Right, because that's what tends to happen when you're a parent, a brand new parent of a very young child, and you're in a hurry to get somewhere, you're on your way, something happens that delays you a bit. And they walk in, and they approach the temple, and before they can even comprehend what's happening, what happens is often what happens in church when someone walks in with a new baby, someone other than the parents ends up holding the baby. And in this case, they meet Two prophets, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And as Simeon holds Jesus in his arms, he does two things, Luke tells us. He praises God and he blesses Mary and Joseph. He tells them that this child is going to do many great things, but that their lives will also be filled with pain as well because of the things that will happen in regard to his life. And we're told that Simeon and Anna have been waiting. And this is what captured my attention as I read through this story in preparation for today. They haven't been waiting with their Christmas calendars on their fridge, moving the candy cane from, week, from day to day. These two, Luke tells us, have been waiting with their lives. They've been waiting with their lives. Simeon has been waiting for God to comfort Israel, which Luke is hoping will catch as an Isaiah 40 reference. Comfort, oh comfort my people, Isaiah says. Simeon knows that Israel has been through it, right? They've been enslaved, they've been occupied, they've been marginalized, they've been attacked, they've been exiled, 
sent out of their own nation by other nations who would attack and conquer them and then would make them leave. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon that a day is coming when God will comfort Israel, when God will console Israel. It says, Luke says he's waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And, and Anna, he tells us, is waiting too. She knows that Jesus is going to have to do something. He's going to have something to do, this Messiah, the Savior, is going to have something to do with freeing Israel from their captivity. She's waiting, Luke says, for the redemption and salvation of Israel. And on this seventh day of Christmas, the final day of 2023, I want us to think about these two people. And I want us to think together about this scene that unfolded in the temple that day. And as I was thinking about their lives and their story, I was, I was struck by this idea, as I said, of waiting, of how much they waited with their very lives. And it, and it occurred to me that your life and my life, our experience is that waiting is an important part. It's a significant part. It's a a primary part of our life with Jesus. I want to say that again. Waiting is an important, it's a, it's a massive part of our life with Jesus. Maybe you've noticed in your life, in the world, that God tends to work really slowly. When you think about it, maybe you've noticed that we wait a lot which is why we talk about faith. It's why faith is such an important part of our life with God. Faith, I want you to think about it this way. This is a kind of a working definition that I want to use today. Faith is the thing, the behavior that we have while we wait, while we live in between the promise that was made and as we wait for the day when the promise will be fulfilled. This is what faith is. And Simeon and Anna believed this. They, they were models of this. They had lived their entire lives waiting in faith. They continued to have faith. Think about this. Even though they didn't know, for, they believed God's promise was going to come true, but they had waited their entire lives. And then they thought, even if I don't ever see it, I believe that God will fulfill the promise one day, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, which I think is literally the definition that Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 1 gives us for faith. As you remember, it says that now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Right? Faith is this thing that, that helps us know that even if we don't see it, it, we can believe that it's going to happen one day. And Simeon and Anna understood that you can believe something that, will, some, that something will happen even if you can't see it happening in the current moment that you're living in. And this morning, as we wrap up 2023 and we head into a new year, as we celebrate Jesus' arrival into the world, but we still are waiting for his return one day, the question that I want us to consider is how do we wait, like Simeon and Anna, how do we wait in faith? And the word in faith there is, is important because there's a difference between waiting and waiting in faith. There's a difference between waiting and waiting in faith. Your posture between these two types of waiting will be different. Your attitude between these two types of waiting will be different. We have all waited for something. Here's how you know that they're different. We've all waited for something with terrible attitudes, right? And this is not what we're after here. Not just waiting generally, but mad about the fact that we have to wait. Waiting in faith with a contentment 
an understanding that God is going to act, God is going to work, God is going to do something even if we can't see it. And if you've ever waited for something to happen and then it doesn't seem to happen quickly, this is discouraging, right? Some of us understand this as Cowboys fans. We understand that every year you get you get excited about the new football season. And then, and then sometime right around Thanksgiving, but sometimes often earlier than Thanksgiving, you know, it seems like keeping hope alive just becomes a harder and harder. Even when, they, even when they win a game, they barely win the game, as happened last night, right? It becomes harder and harder to do to keep hope alive. But for many of us, we're waiting for something. All of us are waiting for something way more important than a football game. Waiting for healing. I want you to think about what you're waiting for right now. Maybe you're waiting for healing. Maybe you're waiting for good news from a friend, from a doctor, from a family member. Maybe you're waiting for a relationship to improve. Maybe you're waiting for the relationship to get better. Maybe you're waiting for the apology. Maybe you're waiting for God to answer your prayer. Maybe you're waiting for God to act or to show up. Maybe... You, like Simeon and Anna, have been waiting for something for a while. And you're honestly kind of tired of waiting. You're wondering if God is working. Is God listening? And what I'm, what I'm wondering again is how can we wait like Simeon and Anna in faith? And I want to suggest this morning that the way that we wait in faith is by holding on to hope. By keeping hope alive, you might say, by remaining hopeful. Hope helps us to not give up. The assumption, if, if you're like me, and I think you are, is that when we wait for God to do something, the assumption is that God is not working, that God is, God's silent, and that must equal God not working. That is the general assumption that people often have, but Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, that my Father is always working. To this very day, he says, I too am working. God is never not working, even if we don't see it. And Simeon and Anna understood that, which is why I think they are great examples of how to wait in faith. Though I think that it would be easy to kind of imagine that they probably had days, Simeon and Anna had days when they thought, maybe I'll never see God provide the answer to this thing, this Messiah, this Savior that I've been waiting for. I I imagine that they did. They were human after all. They would have understood what it would have been like for us to experience a desire for something to happen and then for for it to not actually happen. In fact, I would suggest to you that Simeon and Anna didn't even know fully what they were waiting for. But on that day in the temple in Jerusalem, when they laid eyes on Jesus, they knew that this was it. This was the thing that they had been waiting for. And so this morning, as we think about their life, what can we learn from Simeon and Anna that can help us remain hopeful, help help us keep hope alive, help us hold on to hope while we wait? A couple of things that I want us to consider. First of all, Simeon was able to hold on to his hope because Luke tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that three different times Luke brings up the Holy Spirit when he's talking about Simeon. He says the Holy Spirit was on him. He says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. 
And on that day, he went into the temple courts, Luke says, moved by the Spirit. And I think that this is true for us. We hold on to hope by being filled with the Spirit. And someone might say, well, Doug, I've been filled with the Spirit. It was a gift that was given to me many, many, many years ago. And I would say, yes, that's true, but it's not a one-time process. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing that we are continuing to be filled with the Spirit. What would your life look like if someone said about you, the Holy Spirit is on them? The Holy Spirit reveals things to them. They're moved by the Spirit. What would your life look like and what would this look like in your life? Right? You know people like this, don't you? I once heard a preacher describe these people as spiritual weirdos, and I like that idea a lot. Right? Not spiritual weirdos in the actual spiritual weirdo sense, but spiritual weirdos in the Holy Spirit sense. People that are filled with the Holy Spirit enough that their hope, their hope tank never seems to be empty. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, right? You might have someone that comes to your mind when I say this description. If you were having a baby, we were having a baby blessing like we've had the last couple of Sundays, and an old man walked up and took the baby in his arms without telling you why he was doing that and started saying, now I can die, now I can die, now I can die. That's weird, right? And you would think that it's weird. If there was a lady like Anna, that never left the church. She's like, you know, the old Pentecostal lady that has her tambourine. She just brings her sleeping bag in and she sleeps in the church night and day, fasting and praying, Luke says. That is weird. I mean, we, think, we just read it as, as the story, but it's weird. It would be odd if, if we were like, yeah, we have this lady in our church. She loves Jesus so much that we can't get her to leave when the doors close every Sunday. She just has a place up in the corner of the auditorium where she just sleeps I, we don't know if she showers. We don't know where she cooks her food. She just is there all the time. She she's not eating much because most of the time she's fasting and she's praying for salvation and for redemption, right? We would embrace her. We would love her. We would be welcome her in our midst, but we would also go, that's a little weird. She should probably go home at some point. Simeon and Anna had this intimate relationship with God and they were comfortable in the life of the Holy Spirit. They were comfortable living life in the Spirit. And I want to suggest this morning that we need more spiritual weirdos in this sense, right? You and I, in our lives, in our church, we need more people like this. We need people that want to be filled again and again and again with God's life-giving Holy Spirit, which is where the good news comes in because this is not something that is exclusive to people like Simeon and Anna. This is your story too. And just a couple of places, there are dozens of places we could go, but just a couple of places that I wanna look quickly to, to show you that this is your story too. Both come from Romans. Paul says this in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you abound in hope? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How are you filled with hope? Through God's presence in your life, creating joy and peace in your heart, providing for you and sustaining 
providing something that sustains you in your heart and in your life that is not going to be provided by yourself, right? God gives hope, Paul says, and gives it in abounding ways. And how does Paul say that it arrives in your life? By the power of the Holy Spirit, which leads me to another passage that I want to look at earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says this, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Not only does hope able to abound in your life, Romans 15, Paul says that hope will not disappoint you, that hope will not put you to shame. It will never make you feel shame. And what I want to, I want to sort of, the way I want to summarize these two passages and really other passages that talk about the same thing is that I, I believe that what the Holy Spirit does is that it serves as a kind of hope anchor The Holy Spirit is this reminder in your body that God is not through with the story. The reason Jesus says that he gave us the Holy Spirit is to continue to be with us until he returns. So as long as you, you're not gonna need the Spirit of God when you're with God, you understand that? When Jesus returns, we're not gonna need the Holy Spirit living in us anymore. We're gonna be in the presence of God. So what the Holy Spirit does in your life is that it's this this reminder, spiritual reminder, but it's physically in your body. That part's mysterious, and I get it. It's this spiritual reminder in your physical body that God is not through with the story. The story will end when Christ returns. And then it'll go on forever. And the Holy Spirit is this reminder, this hope anchor that God is not through. And, it, and listen, it is easy in our world. I struggle to not be cynical. I'll go first in confessing and acknowledging that, being skeptical often with my faith, questioning and doubting and wrestling with all sorts of thoughts that I have about God and the world and all the things that are happening in, in our world and the things that, that are happening in my life and the lives of people that I love. I have questions that never go away. And it's easy in our world to become cynical, to get skeptical. But part of what the Holy Spirit does in your life, Scripture tells us, is that it fills you with God's love so that you can hold on to hope until he returns. Are you with me? The Holy Spirit fills you with God's love so that you can hold on to hope until he returns. The Holy Spirit, church, is not this this inactive, dormant thing that is just handed to you when you follow Jesus and that never does anything, which is unfortunately what some of us were taught about the Holy Spirit. And if that was us, if that was your teaching, I want to invite you to dive deeper into what Scripture says is actually true about the Holy Spirit, that it's this living presence in your body that reminds you that God is not done with the story. It is Christ in you, reminding you that God is here on earth as he is in heaven, even if you can't see him. That God is alive, even if you don't see God alive. And the promise is that in the end, hope is not 
going to put you to shame. It is never going to disappoint you. What I love about this story in Luke chapter 2 is that I think that it reminds us, maybe, maybe in a similar way to the way the Christian calendar works, that Christmas is a 12-day celebration, a 12-day feast. This story, I think, reminds us that Christmas doesn't end with the story of a baby. Think about that. Christmas doesn't end with the story of a baby. Christmas is and has always been about the promise of what is coming in the future. And what lies ahead is salvation, is hope, is the assurance that God is not finished. God is not finished with your story. Whatever happened in 2023, God is not finished with the story. And God will not be finished with the story. Whatever you're waiting for, whatever, you're, whatever prayer you've been praying, whatever experience you've been having, whatever current situation you are in or will find yourself in at some point in the future, as long as there is breath in your lungs, there is the Spirit of God at work in you. And that is a reminder to you that God is not finished with the story. And we might wait, you might wait. There's this, this little caveat is that you might wait your entire life like Simeon and Anna and not see the answer come exactly in the way that you want it to come. That's a possibility. Simeon and Anna only got to even see a small amount of what they were waiting for. Think about this. You know more about what Jesus did in the world than Simeon and Anna would actually know, Right? They waited their whole life. They got to see a baby. They probably died at some point not long after that. And they never got to see how Jesus grew up and his life and his ministry and his death on the cross, his resurrection. They never got to stand around and witness his death and, and be there with some of the earliest disciples and see what reality took place as he came up out of the tomb and as the Holy Spirit descended into the world. You have more understanding about God's impact in the world through Christ than Simeon and Anna do. And in the similar way to their life, you might wait for your entire life for something that you are waiting for. And my encouragement to you this morning is that even if that's the case, can we commit to the life of faith that Simeon and Anna modeled for us? That God is not finished and that God is continuing to work and that God promises a better story in the future. Maybe we're all able to see this story that God is writing more clearly. Can we, the question I want to end with this morning is, can we like them embrace this reality? This is the way I want to say it in sort of a simple way. Can we embrace the reality that timelines, calendars don't mean much to God? Right, but can we continue, we, we're going to turn the calendar tonight, tomorrow, but calendars and timelines don't mean much to God. Can we keep looking ahead in faith, holding on, to the promise that God is working in us and in the world even while we wait? And can we wait in faith, believing that Christ came once into the world and that he is coming again? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for uh, examples of faith like Simeon and Anna that help us to understand and, and believe that uh, you're not through with the story, that you're still writing the story 
and that we're, we're still with them in many ways waiting for the back end of this story to, to become a reality when you return one day. Uh, but we're thankful, Father, that we can hold on to hope in faith, that we can wait in faith while we uh, continue to live here on earth. And we can trust that while we live here, that you have placed within us as your people, your spirit, your presence, yourself, so that we can resist the cynicism and the skepticism that so easily creeps up into some of our hearts and minds, the doubt and the questions that certainly we all wrestle with at times, the waiting and the unanswered prayers that we pray, Father, that all of those things that we experience in life, uh, that, that we'll, we'll know that those things are a reality, but we'll also know that we have this presence in us that is Christ in us, that is a reminder that you're not through yet. This morning, Father, as we conclude uh, this year, uh, we pray that you'll continue to help us wait in faith, holding on to the promises that are ahead. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning, we're going to sing one more song before our shepherd's prayer. I would invite you to, to sing this song, and if you have a prayer request, certainly want you to share that. Uh, however you need to respond to God, let's do that as we sing this morning.